Reading Galatians 2, verses 1 through 10. Then after fourteen years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up by revelation, and I laid before them, but privately before those who were of repute, the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, lest somehow I should be running or had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not compelled to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. But because of false brethren secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to them we did not yield submission even for a moment, that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who were reputed to be something, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who were of repute added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for the mission to the circumcised worked through me also for the Gentiles. And when they perceived the grace that was given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they would have us remember the poor, which very thing I was eager to do. Sometime after Paul had established the churches of Galatia, some teachers began to come through the churches of Galatia and teach a different gospel, which according to Galatians chapter 1, verse 7, was no gospel, but a perversion of the truth. Last week, we began to call these teachers Judaizers. And that's what we'll be calling them for the next five months, because they insisted that in order to be justified before God or to be complete as a Christian, you've got to get circumcised and keep some of the Jewish feasts. Paul had preached a justification by grace alone, through faith alone. They didn't think that was sufficient, so they began to add requirements. But to make their gospel stick, they had to discredit Paul's authority as an apostle. And the way they did that was in his absence, they began to spread the word. This Paul wasn't one of the original 12 apostles. He didn't ever know Jesus He's a Johnny-come-lately to the apostolic band. He spent some time with them and tried to pick it up on the side, but when he got off on his own, he botched it. If you really knew what the apostles in Jerusalem taught, you'd get straightened out. So they aimed to straighten out the churches. His authority is not binding. And the first two chapters of Galatians, written to those churches, is to defend himself against that defamation. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. My apostleship is not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Then down in verse 12, the same thing about his gospel. My gospel did not come through man, nor was I taught it. It came through revelation. So the point he develops, as we saw last week in verses 11 to 24 of chapter 1, is that he is not a second-hander. 
He is not reliant upon the 12 or the 11 or 12, if you include Matthias, in Jerusalem to get his gospel and to have authority. He argues that there's enough public information before his conversion and after his conversion so that any reasonable person trying to explain how this man came to be preaching with authority, they would say it could not be because he was an understudy of the apostles. It must have been that he encountered the living Christ on the road to Damascus and was commissioned to preach the gospel with authority. He makes a persuasive case that he is independent of Peter, James, and John, and yet on an equal footing with them. Now, put yourself in the position of the saints in Galatia. You're in trouble. He has reestablished his credibility with great force. And so you say to yourself, yes, Paul did and should be our authority. But is there then dissension among the apostles? Do the Jerusalem apostles preach one gospel represented here in their emissaries, the Judaizers, and Paul preach another gospel which are at odds and which Paul says one is anathema? And if so, who do we believe? They're in a pickle. And that is the issue Paul addresses in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2. Granted that his authority is established, do we now have disunity or unity in the apostolic band? Now, he's got to do this very carefully, what he does here in verses 1 to 10. He does have to keep on preserving his independence. He is not dependent upon those 12, and yet he also has to assert their unity. We are one, and yet Keep a distance. And if you read it in that light, you can understand some of the language that he uses even. Some strange language towards the apostles. Um, what this text has is a twofold main point, I think. A negative one that says, they didn't add anything to me. Verse 6. Those apostles didn't add anything to me. And, and verse 9 they shook my hand and gave me the right hand of fellowship, put their blessing upon me. So he maintains his independence and he achieves the unity. Now, let me just outline for you the way he proceeds here in these 10 verses. Verses 1 to 2, there he tells when, with whom, and why he went up to Jerusalem. He sets the stage for his meetings there. Second, in verses 3 to 5, he describes his encounter with certain ones called false brothers. And he resists them, doesn't give in to them. Third, verses 6 to 10, he describes finally his meeting with the apostles. And he does not resist them, and they do not resist him. Instead, they give him the right hand of fellowship. So let me restate what I think is the main point of the whole unit. And I want to get that on the table quickly because we're going to deal with some minor points and I don't want that one to be clouded. The main point is stated negatively, verse 6, and positively in verse 9. Negatively, Paul says, those who were of repute 
added nothing to me. So he preserves the emphasis of the first chapter. I'm independent. I didn't get my gospel from them. But in verse 9, he says, When they perceived the grace that was given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed, reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcision. In other words, Paul's main point is that after 14 years of ministry in Cilicia and Syria, he finally lays it all out for the Jerusalem church to see. And they say, that's it. They don't add anything. And they give him the right hand of fellowship, blessings on your ministry, go to it in the Roman world. Now, the Galatians are hearing this, okay, as they read. And they should conclude from this, the Judaizers who are circulating through these teachers do not represent the apostles in Jerusalem. Instead, who do they represent? Verse 4, they are the false brothers. And Paul's point then is stand firm. Don't give in to the legalistic demands that these Judaizers are trying to lay on you. Hold your freedom fast, because my authority is one with the authority in Jerusalem. There is not a split in the apostolic community. Okay, that's the main point. Now, let's start at the beginning and look at some of the ways that Paul goes about developing this argument and then draw out some implications for us here. Verses 1 and 2, first of all. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up by revelation, and I said, I laid before them, but privately before those who were of repute, the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, lest somehow I should be running or had run in vain. Okay, four brief observations to clarify what's being said there. First, don't get the idea that Paul started having second thoughts about his gospel, wondered if maybe they really were right and he was wrong, and he went up to check it out to see if he was okay. He says very clearly in verse 2, I went up by revelation. In other words, 14 years ago, I got my gospel by revelation. I was commissioned by revelation. I preached a gospel that came to me by revelation. And now my goings and comings as an apostle are themselves not based on the whim of man. They are by revelation. I go because Christ told me to go. So he's not questioning his gospel. He's obeying his Lord. Second, why did he take Titus? Titus is a nobody. When they shake hands at the end of the text, they only shake hands with Barnabas and Paul. Reason? Paul's not playing games. His gospel has to do with real people. Titus is exhibit A, Greek, uncircumcised, brother, by faith. He's a test case. There would be no better way to force the issue in Jerusalem than to take an uncircumcised Greek and say, 
Here he is. That's what I stand for. Free in Christ, uncircumcised. And the big question is, will the Jerusalem apostles demand he must be circumcised or will they not? Third, those who were of repute, that phrase in verse 2, refers to the apostles, especially Peter, James, and John. Reading it the first time, you might you might not think that, but when by the time you get down to verse 9, you can see that because in verse 9, Peter, James, and John are described as those who are reputed to be pillars. So that same word reputed is used there and it's used above. And I think we shouldn't take it as demeaning. It's a way of, of Paul's keeping his, his independence. You see, running through here are these two themes. I want to be one with them, but I want to keep my distance from them because I don't really care whether they spent time with Jesus. I care whether they've been receiving revelation from Jesus. So their reputation is really not here or there. I question why he met with them in private. That could seem to throw into jeopardy the whole pub- publicness of this whole thing. Um, the best I can do as an explanation for that is to suggest that when you read verses 4 and 5 and you see that these false brothers are so adamant about Titus being circumcised, he will, that Paul says, look, the church here is in no mood for a dispassionate and open hearing of my gospel. You come and we'll lay it before you in private, then we'll go out and you can help us gain a hearing from the larger group, so it seems. Fourth, the purpose of Paul in going up to Jerusalem is stated in verse 2 to be, lest I've run in vain. This is amazing to me, and we'll see more in a minute. Paul's ministry would have been in vain if what? I think... If the Judaizers were right that the Jerusalem apostles required circumcision. That would mean that there was a division, a split, a crack in the foundation of the church. The apostles are called the foundation of the church in Ephesians 2.20. If they are split wide open in what they believe the gospel is, the church can never be built. It will collapse on such an edifice. Paul's whole ministry, he says, is going to hang here on whether he can find that there is a right hand of fellowship instead of disunity. Now, let me draw out from those two verses two implications for us today. First, since the Apostle Paul went up to Jerusalem by revelation and not on his own whim, may we not conclude that it is Christ's will that we deal with disagreement up front and forthrightly. If we're going to be a biblical people at Bethlehem, does it not mean that we must be a confronting people? That is, If you know that someone is doing something or thinking something harmful to the church, 
and that the church is in jeopardy, you don't just spread rumors and talk about them. You go and you lay your case before them and risk what Paul risked. Now, I doubt that there's anybody in this room who loves to do that, finds it enjoyable to come into conflict. Most of us try to avoid those tense feelings and clammy palms and heart that beats so loud when we start to dial the number. We avoid it. But, take note clearly, the desire for comfort and the fear of conflict is not of faith. It doesn't come from Jesus. It is not a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is a product of the flesh. That means it is the way you act and feel when you are relying on your own resources and not looking away to Jesus and depending on his grace to enable you to do what you know is right. That's what the flesh is. Self-reliance doesn't depend on Christ. But Galatians 5.24 says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. In other words, by putting faith in Christ, reckoning our old, fearful, pleasure-desiring self dead, we gain grace and power that is turned horizontally into the ability to confront and do lots of other things that we know it is right to do. And we experience a tremendous freedom. Freedom to confront disagreement head on like Paul did. Now, if, if we or you in your life attempt to maintain peace, husband, wife, neighbors, or we attempt to maintain peace in the church body here, just us, or the Baptist General Conference attempts to maintain peace by avoiding appropriate confrontation, it's going to be a superficial peace. It is going to be a spiritually unproductive peace. And worst of all, it is going to be a destructive peace because it will be a peace maintained by the works of the flesh. It is walking according to the flesh that causes a person to steer away from confrontation, not walking according to the Spirit. So the first implication of these verses is Christ wants his people to confront disagreement lovingly, humbly, head on. Second implication of these two verses in chapter 2. We ought to care deeply about doctrinal disunity. Especially on crucial points of doctrine. Shouldn't split too many hairs. But it ought to bother us that there is so much disunity even in the evangelical church over important doctrines. 
The disunity of God's people ought to matter to us greatly. It ought to send us to prayer and to study and and get us into conversation with people. But instead, I fear, you know what it does? It anesthetizes us. Makes us think that disunity is the norm. It's okay. In fact, it's good. One of the most common new words in Biblical scholarship, I see it turning up again and again in book reviews that I read, is the word richness. I've come to hate it. Because richness in an assessment of biblical truth or doctrines of the early church is a code word for diversity. And diversity is a euphemism for contradictions. You can tell that because the kind of people who are writing the articles and the unfolding that they make out of that word. Very few people stand up today and praise the unity and the coherence of truth. Everybody's enamored by paradox and contradiction and diversity in truth. And you know how it filters down from the halls of ivy to us here in the pews? It makes us take disunity and disagreement in doctrine for granted and not get very worked up about it, very sad about it. It makes us equate relativism with humility. Fantastic ploy of Satan in our day. It makes us equate indifference to error with respect for persons. You try to point out somebody's error and you know the criticism you'll get? You're proud, number one. You have no respect for other people's opinions, number two. Seems to me that Paul's example here teaches us that at least If there is a division, it ought to matter. Let's go to the next section. Verses 3 to 5. Paul describes his encounter with the false brothers in these verses. But even Titus, who was with me, was not compelled to be circumcised, though he was a Greek But because of false brethren secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into into bondage to them, we did not yield submission even for a moment that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Why did Paul include that little incident in his report? If his main point was simply to establish that he has unity with the apostles, he could have jumped from verse two to verse six. The main point would have stood without any difficulty. One reason would be he wants to make very plain that Titus did not have to be circumcised. But there's a more important reason than that, I think. He wanted to tell and make very clear to the Galatian Christians who the Judaizers were. He said to them, you know, there are men in the church, the church, mind you, of Jerusalem, who are false brothers They're from Jerusalem. They demand circumcision. And most importantly, they do not have the commendation of the apostles. 
And that should sound real familiar to the churches in Galatia. Now they know where the Judaizers are from and what the deal is. In verse 5, Paul says that the reason he didn't submit for a moment to those brothers, false brothers, is that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. This, this is really astonishing. Listen to this. This is amazing what he says here. If Paul had given in to that demand of the false brothers, the gospel is over. Can you believe that? One little exception. There would be no gospel, no good news if he said, okay, go ahead and circumcise Titus. Oh, Paul, so picky, good grief, so stubborn, so unyielding. All for the Galatians, all in love. Apologetics is the great love affair of the church. Any requirement that goes beyond faith in the work of Christ ends the gospel. Isn't that amazing? From which we infer this definition for the gospel, which we'll be talking about for many weeks. The good news to the world is that Right standing with God, the most precious thing any human could ask for. Right standing with God was bought totally by Jesus Christ at Calvary. And it can be enjoyed only by faith in his work. And any requirement that comes in to incline us to rely on our work ends it. And Christ is of no more advantage to you. That is astonishing. If you can't see that, you don't understand the gospel yet. It is free or it is no gospel. So what's he accomplished in these four verses? Three to five. Three, four, five. Three verses. He's accomplished first to show the Galatians who the Judaizers are. They're false brothers. And he's accomplished second to show them what's at stake in their false teaching. The gospel is at stake. If you accept it, that little exception, circumcision, keeping the Sabbath. Christ is no advantage to you. Finally, verses 6 to 10. Paul describes here his encounter with the apostles. He's finished with the false brothers now. And now he's meeting with the apostles. What happens? Verse 6 gives the negative statement. They added nothing to me. Remember verse 12 of chapter 1? I did not receive the gospel from man nor what I taught it, but it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Years later, after he had received his gospel from Christ in his conversion, they still have nothing to add. When they see it, they say, that's it. We agree. Good gospel, Paul. Go to it. Then in verses 7 to 10, you have the positive statement, which is so wonderful, so important to Paul. Verse 9, we read it before. Let me say it again, halfway through. James and Cephas and John, 
gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. There it was, the blessed unity that he loved. I, I, I picture Paul in my mind here just torn inside. He has to maintain independence lest he be called a second-hander. He loves those guys like crazy. We're one. We're in it together. He wanted to just take that hand like that, you know. We are one in this. This is the most blessed thing he's heard for years, probably. All the rumors about whether or not the apostles in Jerusalem preached another gospel. And here he sees that hand coming out after 14 years. And it means he's free. Free to go and never worry again that the foundation is split open back in the home base. Free to head to Italy in his old age. Oh, that was a great moment for Paul. There ought to be a spot in our heart for Paul because he did it that the gospel might be preserved for you. Let me close by reminding you now not to exalt Paul too highly, though he's my second model after Jesus. It was God, ultimately, that preserved the gospel, wasn't it? God, according to Ephesians 1, thought it all up before the, end of the, before the beginning of the world. Then God, according to chapter 1, verse 15, chose Paul before he was born. Then God, in chapter 1, verse 16, called Paul by his grace into his, into his service. Then God, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 20, preached Every time Paul preached, it was all of God. And when God stood there with Paul at the Jerusalem council and Paul did not yield to the false brothers, it was God who preserved the gospel for us. That's confirmed in verse 8. Did you ask yourself, how did Peter, James, and John know that this man was an authoritative apostle? Verse 8 gives the answer. For he who worked through Peter, that's God, worked also through Paul. They saw God in Paul. God was the stamp of his apostleship. He had been chosen by God before his birth, called by God at the road to Damascus, God preached through him. God helped him preserve the gospel. And that means that the gospel was preserved for us by God. So let me just close now with two questions for you that bring you before big issues. One, if God worked before the world to make a gospel, if he worked by sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross for my and your sins, if he raised him from the dead, if he called the apostles, if he caused Paul to preserve the gospel, if for 2,000 years he kept it pure, if he worked in me to preach it this morning for you, does he not love you? And is not he worthy of your faith? And your obedience. Second question. If God has worked this way to preserve the gospel. 
for people who need it. Isn't there here an incomparable challenge for missions? This really hit me. I, you always wonder, what, what, should you, what kind of applications should you make from a text? I could not escape this application here. The Jerusalem Conference Council, whatever you want to call it, was the great day for missions. Because in it, the unity of the gospel was finally secured. A launching pad from which Paul said, you go to the Jews, I'll go to the world. And he made it to Minneapolis. And I don't know about you, but this is the inference that I draw from that. If you devote your life to the preservation and the heralding, of the gospel for people who don't know it. Cannot you be assured on the basis of verse 8 that God will work in you and for you with all his might and under you will be no fractured foundation but a complete, solid, coherent unified basis of truth in the gospel, which is the declaration of the greatest acts in history. Christ died for your sins, according to the scriptures, was buried and rose for your eternal salvation. Shall we pray? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, thank you. I thank you for all these people. They're saying it in their hearts, and I'm just saying it out loud. Thank you for the gospel that Paul did not compromise, that it was preserved pure for the Galatians and all to follow. Thank you that the gospel is free grace. And I pray, Lord, that as this Lenten season begins and as we move towards Good Friday and Easter in a few weeks, you will cause sinners to repent and unbelievers to be enamored by the beauty of the gospel and drawn into the kingdom. And that believers will come to cherish more and more and witness with more and more power to the beauty of this Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.